right, uh, keep your Bibles open to Galatians 2. This is our second week in Galatians. Um, and honestly, I never thought I would start a sermon like this, but um, any of you guys familiar with Joel Osteen? Do you know his, uh, <laughs> his work? Uh, sort of prosperity gospel guy, expensive suits, um, big church, that kind of thing. Um, and I used to, one of my guilty pleasures growing up was watching Joel Osteen, uh, not so much to learn anything as to, uh, as you do, uh, ridicule and do all sorts of awful things, um, which he would never take note of because he doesn't know who I am. Um, but anyway, he, he used to start his sermons in a very uh, odd way that w- I particularly thought was um, yeah, just American and Hollywoodized and kind of ridiculous. And as I've gone along, I've actually sort of repented of that opinion and realized it's the exact right way to start a sermon. What he used to do is he would get everyone to hold their Bibles above their heads. Have you guys seen this happen before? And he would say, he would would get them to repeat after him and say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. And I can do what it says I can do. And that sort of, you know, struck me at the time as being kind of... um, uh, narcissistic or, you know, the Bible's all about me or something. Actually, um, if you take a kind view of it, what it was saying is, I don't define myself, God defines me. I don't define my limitations, God defines my limitations. I don't define who I am before him, God defines that. And so if I want to find out who I am, I don't look within. I don't define that for myself. I look into the pages of scripture and I take it at its word. Now, whatever other critiques we want to make of Joel, I'm sure there are many, that one thing um, I I want to have in our minds. Because Galatians is actually a a very simple book. It was probably Paul's first letter, and it was written um, under circumstances in which Paul just didn't want to mince words. And so he was very, very specific. He was very clear about how we are to live the Christian life, the whole way we approach it. But if you've been a Christian for a long time or around church for a long time, what you can end up doing is reading these words on the page through the complexities of your own experience. So you might read simple, like the statements have flashed up on the screen if you paid attention, really simple statements like, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the lusts of the flesh. And something in your mind says, can't be that simple. Actually, you know, I've, I've lived a little bit and I know that's not really how it works. And we start to kind of overcomplicate things and bring our own experience into the picture. And so I want to encourage us as we dive into this book, just to put all of that aside and take a fresh look at the gospel as it is presented here and a fresh look at what it means to walk in Christ. That's the reason we're studying this book, is because there's a very specific way... Uh, we are to live as Christians. It's not like a, another religion in which you're trying to work to earn the favor of God. We know that. But even once you have the favor of God and you're trying to live for him, we don't merely do it by rules and regulations either. There's something else going on. And that's what's laid out here in Galatians. Galatians has a very interesting structure. It begins by telling us that we cannot get to God by works of the law. And so we have to have faith in Jesus instead. And then it ends by saying, and when you have faith in Jesus, you will fulfill the law. And if that sounds like a contradiction, stick around, um, and hopefully that will become clearer to you. But this morning, we want to um, start with what is the foundation of our lives in Christ, and that is justification. 
This is what we live from, that we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's start there, justification by faith. Um, Paul, at the start of Galatians, gives like a a little autobiographical sketch um, of his conversion and what happened shortly thereafter. And he says in verse 9 there, that when he went to meet with some of the senior apostles, James and Peter and John, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They welcomed him in and said, you're preaching the gospel, we're, we're preaching, keep doing what you're doing. But then in verse 11, um, Paul is down in Antioch and Peter comes down and Peter does not, uh, Paul does not give Peter the right hand of fellowship in return. Verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul, it says in verse 14 there, saw that Peter was living out of step with the gospel. His words were saying one thing. He was saying, look, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you get, uh, that's a non-Jew, you get to God only through Jesus Christ, not by keeping any rules or any regulations. But he was living as if those rules and regulations were actually very important. Because when certain Jews came down who did keep the law, he stopped eating with Gentiles. Uh, Jew, those Jews believed it, was, it would defile you to eat with Gentiles. Peter knew better, but out of his fear of man, out of his people-pleasing, which actually often leads to hypocrisy as you try and keep everyone happy, um, Peter, uh, Paul says, stood condemned. And just as a brief aside here, there's something we can really learn from Paul about how to deal with a fellow Christian that we deem to be in error in some way. Um, we have two choices when we, when we see something. Either we can speak the truth about that person to other Christians, which we often disguise as concern or as a prayer point. It's often not much more than gossip. Or we can take the problem to that person, which is love. And that's what Paul does here. He takes a big risk here. It seems like Paul was in a lonely position. Everyone had gone astray doing what Peter was doing in not eating with these Gentiles. And Paul rebuked him publicly. You can imagine if Paul had done what we are often tempted to do in that situation and say, man, what is Peter doing? And gone and talked to some of his friends about it. Nothing would have changed. Peter would have stayed condemned. Barnabas would have stayed deceived. You know, the the church would have remained divided. The gospel would have remained in disrepute. But because Paul took the risk of offending everyone with his love, he actually spared them all of that. The speech to Peter goes on in verse 15 there. I think in Greek there's no punctuation, but it actually looks like this is a continued speech, even though it's probably broken up in your Bible. Uh, So Paul goes on uh, addressing Peter, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. When uh, we use a term like justification, what we mean is, on what basis are we made acceptable to God? We live in a moral universe. Um, God created us at a fixed point, and he actually stamped on every human heart some understanding of right and wrong. That flows from who God is. It's written down in the Old Testament. You go to the Ten Commandments, that would give you some insight as to what this is. 
And what God tells us is right and wrong and not mere moral suggestions. There's actually a judgment that is coming. This universe is not just continuing on and on and on. We're heading toward a fixed point called the judgment in which every human being will stand before God one by one and give an account of their lives and how they've lived in light of what God has required of them. And there will be two possible verdicts on that day. Either you will be condemned, you will be uh, sent away to, to death and to everlasting shame, or you will be justified, you'll be acquitted, you'll be declared not guilty, and you'll go away into everlasting life with God. And so the question of justification is this, how can I know now, how can I know today that I will get that not guilty verdict then? How, will I know, how do I know today that I will be acquitted then? And there are two approaches. Um, Paul details them there in verse 16. There's um, justification by works of the law, made right with God by keeping the rules, or there's justification by faith in Christ. So let's start with justification by works of the law. That was the approach that um, the Jews had at this time. Um, and it, it's a pretty logical kind of thing. If we're going to be assessed on God's law one day, if we're going to be assessed on his right and wrong, just keep the rules, and then when you stand before that judgment seat, uh, you'll be acquitted. He'll say, well done, you did what I asked you to do. But the problem that Paul points out here uh, is simply that you can't do it, that no one is able to keep that law. Verse 16, he says it twice. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And then at the end, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, the, the problem is with uh, the Jewish people of this time, also just religious people of all stripes, and we're all bent in some way as human beings in some kind of religious fashion, is that we think that by keeping the externals of the rules of God, we've somehow, uh, we've somehow made it, we've somehow done it. And so for the Jews, they, they might say, look, the Ten Commandments say, um, you, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. I haven't done any of those things, so I'm okay with God. But what was missed is that actually the law commands the internal as well. It commands the heart. The command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, is not a New Testament invention. That's from the law of Moses. The, the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is from Leviticus. So these, uh, these commandments are actually to our heart. And then when Jesus came along, he even said those commandments that seem to be about our external behaviors, they're also about the heart. So if I can restrain myself somehow from murdering my neighbor, and yet I have hatred in, his heart, in my heart for him, I haven't actually kept the law not to murder. If I can keep myself from committing adultery, but I do have lust in my heart and desire for another woman who's not my wife, I haven't kept the law of not committing adultery. And I think we have a similar issue when we think that by living by our own moral code, we will somehow be right with God on that day. It's a pretty common sentiment. I'm doing the best I can. I'm living up to what I think. I'm not perfect, but on that day, I think God will accept what I've done. The problem is, I think we can do enough to satisfy ourselves, but it's not us who judge ourselves. We can do enough to say, I, yeah, I'm kind of inconsistent, but I kind of do the best I can. But ultimately, it's God who judges us. 
Um, at the moment, you would have seen, we've got a, a baby at home, Rory, and so most of the time at night, the lights are off and we're just trying desperately to get him to sleep. That's our whole task after dinner. Um, we also have a dog at home who's a complete furball and just molts everywhere, and so we're vacuuming all the time. And the other night, I tried to vacuum in the dark to sort of save a bit of time while Jazz was rocking um, Rory around. And I was going over the same bits that I normally go over and around the couch, and I was like, it's not going to be the best job, but it's, it's near enough. I think it's going to look pretty good. And I got up in the morning and opened the blind, and as the light shone on the carpet, it looked identical to the minute before I started vacuuming that carpet. Nothing was actually changed. And that's what it's going to be like on the judgment. There are going to be all sorts of people who get to the judgment and go, I've done the best I can, I've got my moral law, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a pretty moral person. They're satisfied, but when the light of God shines on them, when they're assessed against the standard of God, it's going to be actually very clear, you didn't do anything. You actually didn't please God at all. Now, all of this can sort of make you think, well, God's a bit of a stickler, that he, he wants to be so precise with his moral judgments. And yet we see his great love for us in the fact that he actually makes a way for us to be justified with him. And that's the second approach to justification, not justification by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. David mentioned the word redemption before that God actually set about buying us back, not because he couldn't tolerate our sin anymore and just needed to clean us up, but because he loved us, because he so loved us, he so wanted a relationship with us, he actually made his own way for us to be right with him. He sent his son into the world, who lived a perfect life under the law, not just the externals, but the internals as well. He then died on the cross, not for his own sins, but the scriptures say he died on the cross as God's way of dealing with our sins, that somehow in Christ we were there as well, receiving the punishment for our sins in him, which means that we're, uh, we can be confident before the, uh, before the judgment that we will be acquitted, that we'll be justified, not because we're not guilty, but because the punishment has already been paid for our guilt, that we died in Christ 2,000 years ago. That was the punishment. That was done. And so when we stand before him, there'll be no punishment left to pay and we'll be accepted by God. And we get connected to this sacrifice of Christ by simple faith in him. Simply saying, I acknowledge my guilt. I don't justify myself. I have no other uh, approach. I simply trust what Jesus did. Now, if you're a non-Christian in the room uh, this morning, I know there are always a number of non-Christians here and it's wonderful to have, uh, wonderful to have you. This provision of God is for you if you will have it. That fear that you might have of standing before God um, or that guilt that you might have for the things that you have done, all of it can actually be removed. That restlessness that you have, one, one ancient Christian said, where our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. That restlessness that you have can be taken away before you leave your seat. There are no acts of penance that you have to do. There's no uh, rules that you have to keep. There's nothing that you need to clean up. Right away, if you acknowledge your guilt before God and trust in Jesus, you can be justified and know that when you stand before God, he will accept you. 
Now, if you're a Christian in this room, I hope that like Peter, who was hearing this from Paul, getting the gospel preached to him, that like Peter, you actually already know all of these things. And so like Paul to Peter, what I want to call on you to do is to live them, to live these truths. You believe them. Have, you, have they become who you are? And that's where we go next, from justification by faith to justified identity. All of this prompts a question from Paul's uh, opponents, which he anticipates there in verse 17. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? What he's saying is, if when Jesus comes, he says, whether you keep the law or not, I don't really care. All you need to do is believe in me and actually turn away from the law and you'll be saved. If that's what he's saying, does, does the Jewish Messiah not care about the Jewish law? Because he seems to be calling people to turn away from it. He seems to be making his formerly righteous people sinners. It's not so dissimilar to a common uh, criticism of the gospel uh, that we hear today. I've got a friend who belongs to the Baha'i faith. And we've talked about these things for pro- almost 20 years. And the most common criticism that he brings up is, if God calls you good, even when you're not good, Why would you be good? What's the point of doing right? Now, maybe that doesn't hit you so much, but maybe you think personally, not so much the why, but the how. If if we have turned away from keeping the rules, if we've turned away from the law, how, how is it that we live lives pleasing to God as Christians? Paul gives two answers. Firstly, he reminds them, that all the law is good for is condemnation. He says that in verse 18. Even if I bring the law back and say, okay, let's try and do the law thing, he says, all it does is show how sinful I am. And therefore, in verse 19, he says, that actually um, my death to the law doesn't make me an immoral person, doesn't make me a bad person. My death to the law actually joins me to God who gave the law. And therefore, it's my only chance of living a righteous life. You see that there in verse 19. Through the law, I died to the law, not just so I could die to the law and say I'm free now. I died to the law so that I might live to God. The second answer then is that in Christ, we actually do live righteous lives because we have put on a justified identity. That's what I want to call it. Verse 20 there. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, it's, it's actually probably true that just having a theological belief that Jesus makes you okay with God doesn't change you. It doesn't change you unless you take that truth of justification, that truth of the gospel, down off the theological shelf and put it on as your identity. And you see that's what Paul did here. He actually lived from this reality. It is so personal for Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. So here are three affirmations for you to build your identity on the justification that comes through Jesus. Number one, I have been crucified with Christ. We often identify ourselves, I think, by kind of how our lives are going. And so, uh, 
you know, we think about the fact that we, uh, we still sin. We think about the fact that we still have desires that are not really right. We think about the fact that we have wounds, things that people have sinned against us. And uh, as a result, we can have quite complex identities. And Paul had all of those things going on in his life as well, right? He had greater sins than the rest of us. In fact, he persecuted the very church of God. Uh, he had greater wounds than us. He had seen all sorts of persecution, all sorts of suffering. Uh, he still had these desires that were not in conformity with Christ. We read about those in Romans 7. And yet he identifies himself by none of those things. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That means those sins are forgotten. I, I've been crucified with Christ. It means any wounds, any ways that people have sinned against me, I've forgiven. They're gone. I've been crucified with Christ means all of my desires that I used to have are irrelevant to me. I no longer live, he says. And so we need to, I think, similarly, boldly claim this identity. Even being aware of whatever mess is in our own lives, say none of that is relevant. Actually, I'm crucified with Christ. And that's the only way in which we can actually get past ourselves, God, uh, Paul says, to God. So I've been crucified with Christ. Second affirmation, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, Jesus didn't just die for us to forgive us. He died for us so that he could forgive us and therefore come and live in us. Uh, we sung before, there is none like you. And truly, if, if you've walked with Jesus any amount of time, you know that that is the case. There is none like him. And so actually the prize of our lives is not, um, and goal is not turning our lives around and performing better and being more moral people. The ultimate goal and prize is having Jesus Christ in us. And this turns everything on its head so that now I don't live for behavioral change. I don't live to be transformed. I don't live to do better. I live enjoying friendship with Jesus who lives in me. And my transformation to become more like him is the happy byproduct of that. I spend time with Christ and I become Christ-like. And this is the big game changer. This sort of answers that question of if we've turned away from the law, how do Christians still actually live lives that please God? And the answer is we do it not by trying to strive for some kind of external standard over here that we're living up to, but by submitting to the internal presence of Jesus who really dwells in us. And so it would do us all good to, get, to take this on faith, to say, no, Christ really lives in me. Right now, right where you're sitting, if you know him, Christ lives in you. His presence is in you. And thirdly then, the last part of verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Sometimes you read a passage like this and you feel like uh, it's quite extreme, and it is, but not in a bad way. You know, you, sometimes you can think that if, if I was to be a spiritual person like Paul here, that would kind of empty me of my personality. He's saying all of, my, all of my former life is gone, it's all crucified, and now it's just Christ in me. But he goes on and it's a sort of paradoxical statement. He says, but I still live. What Paul is saying is actually none of this, none of this eradicates your personality. None of this eradicates your background. In fact, Paul has just spent a whole chapter talking about his background and his personality and who he is. But what he's saying is none of that defines you anymore. So that I'm still an Australian. I still have parents 
I still, uh, I still am an, an extrovert. I still like soccer, you know, whatever. I'm a Christian. I still have all of those things. But I can't say as a Christian, because I'm an Australian, I'm kind of laid back about my faith because that's what Australians do. I can't say because I, I had a father, this is purely hypothetical, because I had a father who's an angry man, I'm always going to be an angry man. You know, because I'm a, you know, you could say because I'm an introvert, I could never share Jesus with someone. Because I like soccer, I've got to make sure I get to the game. All of these things, actually, while they color who Christ is in me, they're my unique expression of who Christ is in me, they never limit what Christ can do through me. So Paul then simplifies everything down to this very simple identity statement. And this is profound to me because this is, this is what the children who have just gone out to chaos are learning, this kind of thing. This is basic Christianity, what Paul is, says here. And yet it produced the life that we see on the pages of Acts. Paul uh, facing shipwrecks, facing hunger, seeing people come to the Lord, seeing people healed, all of these things were produced by first day Sunday school line. Here it is. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who firstly, he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Paul didn't have anything special that we didn't have in this regard, except for the fact that he consistently believed this and lived from it. He lived by faith that the word of Jesus over his life was more important than his word over his own life. Whether he felt guilty or whether he felt whatever he felt, he trusted that Jesus' word of, you are clean, you are loved, I've died for you, is more important than his word. And he trusted that Jesus' direction, where he told him to go, what he told him to do, was more wise than Paul's own desires and where he would want to go and how he would want to live. So, what does all of this mean for Monday morning? What does this mean for tomorrow? It means that when you wake up tomorrow, if you're a believer in Jesus, what's going to happen is you're going to have multiple voices swirling in your head. Sometimes I wonder where the line is between being sort of almost schizophrenic and being a Christian is, because you have all sorts of voices in your head talking to you all the time. One of those voices is the legalist in you, who's going to be telling you from the moment you wake up tomorrow, you're not worthy. You're not right in God's sight. There's something you haven't done that you need to do. And you're going to have your own flesh, your own natural self speaking to you, saying, do what you want to do today. You're owed this, or you need to do this. And over both of those things, let your identity in Christ speak louder. No, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. My, my desires are no longer relevant, um, and I have, my sins have been forgotten by God. And then as you proceed into the day, proceed into the day with just one thought in your mind. Christ lives in me. Proceed into the day with a clear mind and just one thought. He is in me. And then do what the scripture uh, speaks about in multiple different ways. John 10 will say, listen to his voice as his sheep. Um, Ephesians 5 will say, figure out what pleases Jesus. Uh, Romans 12 will say, discern what the will of God is. As he lives in you, discern what he wants you to do. Not by principles, not by um, steps, not by law, but by knowing Jesus who dwells in you. It's amazing. I was at Kmart the other day and the kids run wild in Kmart because there's no accountability because it's 24 hours and so the staff are weary and so they're, they're running in all directions as we're looking for a toy um, for a birthday party. But as soon as I 
uh, call out and say, Toby, Wesley, I want to say as soon as, sometimes they're slightly disobedient. They hear my voice straight away. And within a minute or two, they come running and they're both there in front of me. Over all of that noise that's going on in Kmart and all of the various voices and all of the other parents yelling at their kids, they hear my voice. Why? Because they know me. They've spent a lot of time with me. They know my voice instinctively. And so we can often have these debates. Well, with all the voices swirling in our heads, how do we know which one is Jesus talking to us? I want to say there is no shortcut. There is no uh, special technique for finding that out other than relationship with Jesus, day by day walking with Jesus, learning his voice. And it's amazing. You know, I I, um, have only been more deliberate with this kind of thing this year. I think um, at the beginning of the year, in about February, just all sorts of things where God was sort of telling me that he still speaks to me. You know, I I think I'd become slightly uh, intellectual in my approach. Um, And the intellect obviously has a place. Here's a scripture and here's how I apply it. Uh, Here's the principle and here's how I put it into practice. And what I was just bombarded with is actually, no, more than that, I'm in relationship with the living Jesus. And he speaks to me and he actually speaks more frequently than I would have thought. And it's amazing how often when your mind is clear and you're not constantly thinking, how can I get right with God? But just going, I am right with God. And you're not thinking, is he really in me? But you just say, he is in me. And you really expect him to speak. It's amazing how often he does. I find myself cleaning windows uh, for someone. I clean windows for a living. And I just hear this, go go pray with them for their business, that their business flourishes. You know, something like that, which I've never done before, but you just get that inclination from him. Or walking past a homeless person, go ask that person what their dreams are, what their aspirations are. Or I've had it, when Jazz and I will have a a disagreement, not code for argument, actual just a disagreement. Um, And you're trying to sort of figure out who's, who's right here, who's wrong. And I'll be walking away uh, to use the bathroom or something and just get this impression, just go tell her the truth. Do you know how in, uh, in marital relationships, sorry for going out on a tangent here, that sometimes you're having an argument and it's because, this wasn't an argument, it was a disagreement. <laughs> sometimes you're having a disagreement. Um, it's a good thing no one subscribes to Freud's ideas here. That was not a slip. Um, When you're having a disagreement, it's amazing how you can start to become quite a politician as a husband or a wife. And you go, well, I've said that this is why I'm upset, and I'm sticking to that, even though there's something in me that knows that's not why I'm upset. There's actually something else going on here. And so I'd be having a disagreement with Jazz, and I'd walk away, use the bathroom, and as I'm going, just hear this, why don't you try just telling her the truth? And often that requires coming back and being more vulnerable and saying, you know what, I said this was what was going on. It's not. There's something deeper than that. Or, you know, facing disappointment from a, a, a fellow believer, as I said about Paul seeing Peter, you know, and going, I think this person's out of line. And just hearing this voice say, don't talk about them, go talk to them. You know, go get their number, go call them. This is how we live, fulfilling the law unconsciously, just through relationship with Jesus. And there are plenty of hits and plenty of misses along the way. But just through relationship with Jesus, naturally, he actually lives and fulfills the law through us hope that's clear. Um, All of that overflows into justified community. Breathe easy. There's only one minute on this. Um, Back to Peter and the table. Justified community. How you perceive other Christians 
will tip you off. It's one marker of how much this is actually your identity. If truly your identity is Christ lives in me and I no longer live, you will love Christ in other Christians, whether or not they share your ethnicity or your social economic status or whether you have natural affinity for them. You will love other Christians just because they're other Christians, not because they're your kind of Christians who believe the same things or do the same things. And I think that's what Paul was trying to get across to Peter here. Don't just believe in justification by faith. Put it on every day as your identity and live from it. Let's pray. Our Father, for all that we can say about these things, we know that this is a spiritual work that you do in our hearts. Lord, we read in your word, the promise of the new covenant is the law written on the heart is the circumcision of the heart to make us feel the things that you feel and fulfill the law not as external commands but because you yourself have come to live in us, that you've made us your temple. And we thank you that you have made us your dwelling, Lord. Whether we're aware of it or not, Lord, you are living in us. And I just want to ask, Lord, that you give us all a heightened sense of that in this week, Lord, as we go out into this week, that every day in all the mundane events of life, we would recognize the fact that Christ lives in us, Lord. And I pray that we would take every thought captive that is not in obedience to that truth, Lord. That we would not agree with condemnation in our lives, that we wouldn't agree with um, past desires, that we wouldn't be caught up on past wounds, Lord. But instead, uh, we would know ourselves crucified with Christ and no longer living, but Christ living in us. And Lord, I just want to pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, and does not yet know the sweetness of a life of freedom in which there is just a recognition that when we stand before you, we're going to be welcomed in and not shut out from your presence, Lord. I pray for anyone in that position, Lord, that you would just do a work in their spirits, Lord. I pray also over the coming days, over the coming weeks, Lord, that you would be seeking them just as you seek the lost sheep that wanders away and leave the 99 and go after him, Lord. Just as you welcome back the lost son, just as you search for the lost coin, I pray that you would search for any who have lost and wandered away from you, Lord, to restore them to sonship, to daughtership, Lord, in your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.